Hi, I'm Jo Litson. Welcome to The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws on the passions, expertise and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders to bring a wealth of insight to your travels, one topic at a time. Today I'll be talking to internationally acclaimed archaeologist Dr Estelle Laser, who's known for her extensive research at Pompeii. Estelle once described the myths that have built up around the human victims as romancing the bones. For more than three decades now, she's been working to uncover the truth. For her PhD, she studied the site's human skeletons. She's now using CT scans and X-rays to investigate the unique plaster casts, some of which include remains of the dead. She's been the subject of several television documentaries, and she's also the author of a book called Resurrecting Pompeii. So Esther, when did you first become interested in Pompeii? Uh, really quite young. So I was always fascinated by ancient cultures, and I discovered Pompeii in a book when I was about eight, and the enthusiasm for the site never left me. So I guess I've been very lucky to work in a place that I always dreamt about. So when did you first actually see it? I first went to Pompeii in 1986 when I started working there and it never disappointed. (laughs) So you've been back many, many times, I suppose. Uh, More times than I can count. (laughs) So was it always the human remains, the human victims that fascinated you most? No, it's the whole site. I mean, to have these, well, all the Vesuvian sites, they're so well-preserved above-ground sites where because we're looking at the archaeology of a mass disaster, we've got every aspect of these um, places preserved. Um, And we do also have this huge collection of individuals who all died of the same event at the same time. So archaeologically speaking, the site of Pompeii and all the sites in the region are absolutely unique. Can you tell us exactly what did happen when Mount Vesuvius erupted and Pompeii was caught? Yes. Um, so we think, and we don't know for sure, but we think that it was a two-phase eruption. Before the eruption, about 17 years earlier, there was a huge earthquake, and we think that initiated a new phase of volcanic activity at Mount Vesuvius. And the last 17 years of occupation appear to have been marked by a lot of seismic activity. And then just leading up to the eruption, There were disruptions to the water supply and stuff like that, but there wasn't really an awareness that something terrible was about to happen. But what we think happened was that there there was a huge pressure buildup in the magma chamber and this then resulted in a series of explosions that produced a huge eruption column that was capped by a cloud. And that cloud hailed ash and pumice in the direction of the wind on that day, which was southeast. So Pompeii ended up being covered by 2.5 to 2.8 metres of ash and pumice in the first phase of the eruption. When the explosion stopped, the eruption column, which it's estimated to have reached a height at its peak of somewhere between 27 and 32 kilometres, couldn't support itself anymore. So it started to collapse. And this uh, resolved itself in the next phase of the eruption, which was a series of hot gas avalanches, which we call pyroclastic density currents. They come in two forms, pyroclastic flows, which are dense gas avalanches, which um, they made up of pumice and ash and they hug the ground. So a lot of them were funneled towards um, Herculaneum. And 
Worse than those, we get pyroclastic surges, which are dilute avalanches of particles suspended in hot air and um, gas, and they're not constricted by anything. So they can travel radially in any direction from the crater and they can travel at speeds anywhere between 100 and 300 kilometres an hour. Their temperatures can range from 100 to 500 degrees Celsius. They have very little free oxygen, lots of poisonous materials, they're very turbulent. They'll pick up anything in their path and turn it into a projectile. So if you haven't escaped by that stage, you have no hope. And it, the first um, pyroclastic surge didn't reach Pompeii. The second didn't. The third reached the walls of Pompeii but didn't enter. The super deadly surges were the fourth and fifth, which came one after the other. And that's what covers the victims that we have. So other places were affected as well, were they? Other, other villages and towns? Yes, everywhere in the region was affected. So the really hot spots were Pompeii, there's Herculaneum, Aplontus, Stabia, but on the other side of the mountain, places were affected too. The difference was that people came back after the eruption. It wasn't quite so bad there. The sites around Pompeii were so badly affected and covered completely that they weren't reoccupied. And that's why we have these amazing sites that are preserved in complete detail from the most humble objects to whole houses with all their contents. So they are completely unique sites. So after you'd done your PhD and you'd been to the site and become absolutely fascinated with it, how did your work develop? The first time I went to Pompeii in 1986 and saw the casts with my own eyes, I was uh, amazed to see the little bones poking out of the um, fingers and toes of these casts and I realised that the skeletons were embedded within the casts and I realised that they were a phenomenal resource scientifically. What happened in Pompeii with the skeletons was that they weren't stored very carefully so we don't have too many entire skeletons and it's very important to understand that when excavation started in Pompeii in 1748, there was no such thing as archaeology. So we can't, we can't judge what was done in the 18th century, but they weren't interested in the skeletons. The people excavating the site were really fascinated by beautiful sculptures, wall paintings, mosaics, and the skeletons they didn't throw away because they could use them to make vignettes for visiting dignitaries to artistically drape them over amphorae and the like when they re-excavated houses. They actually re-excavated houses that were already excavated. They'd cover them up and re-excavate them in the presence usually of royalty and just to enhance their viewing experience, their draper skeleton artistically over some objects at the bottom of the excavation. And so they kept the skeletons, but they didn't store them very carefully. And over time, the bones became very mixed up. And so what I was left with when I started my work were mountains of bones, all commingled. And to do my research, I had to separate the bones out into piles of individual types of bones and do statistical studies on each type of bone and use modern forensic techniques to work out what sex and age 
um, they were um, when they died, uh, what diseases they had, if they presented on the bones, what their population affinities were, any lifestyle indicators to get a picture of the population. But to really understand what was going on, it would be much better to use entire skeletons. So the casts were of great interest to me because there's a substantial number of them. And by looking at complete skeletons, we can get much more information about particularly pathology, but also about sex determination and age at death. And so I could compare, if I was studying the casts, I could compare the results of my initial research with this new research and build on the picture I already had. So did you find a lot of things that were different to what people had previously assumed? Absolutely. And that's the joy of doing archaeology because you never know what you're going to find. And I guess you just need to have an open and flexible mind. But yes, everything was um, not as expected, which is really lovely. So what, what we did find was what appears to be a random sample of a normally distributed population of victims. And that tells us that, you know, it was, and disaster theory tells us the same. We, it can be anyone can be caught out by a mass disaster. The decision to leave or stay was, um, you know, almost random. So can you tell us about the casts that were created? When, when were they made? Uh, the first successful cast was made in 1863. So we have this phenomenon, and it's very specific to Pompeii and the sites just around it, that um, those victims that were still outside when the hot gas avalanche, we call it a pyroclastic surge, hit them, they were encased in very, very fine ash. It was the same chemical composition of cement. It hardened around them and over time their soft tissue decomposed and percolated out down through the porous layers of what had fallen before that phase of the eruption and that left a void in that ash. So when they started digging and they started officially digging in Pompeii in 1748, they started to find these holes in the ground and they recognised some of them were human forms because the skeletons were still inside, but they weren't able to successfully do anything about it really till 1863. But they weren't just human forms preserved, anything organic, we get the forms preserved. So in the early years of the 19th century, they started to pour liquid plaster of Paris into holes and left it to set over a few days, chipped away the ash, and they found the forms of furniture, trees, lintels, you know, anything organic. Getting human forms preserved was more complex because... They're more fiddly, I guess, um, and that's what took a bit longer to, to achieve successful results. They experimented before. So you have done work then looking at the casts and with x-rays and trying to see what's inside. I mean, are there still a lot of the bones inside them? The current project I'm working on is to x-ray and CT scan the casts. So Amazing as it may seem, no one actually studied the cast scientifically until last century we x-rayed and CT scanned the first cast and now we're working on all of the casts of the victims. Now, in theory, the skeletal remains should be inside. In practice, that's not what we've always found. 
So some of them have complete skeletons and some of them really are quite surprising. Where have the bones gone? Have they just literally decayed away? No. (laughs) Um, They've been removed in Ah. cases. So this was completely unexpected. Unfortunately, when they first started making the casts, they didn't document exactly what they did. And the casts were made by restorers who restored statues. So they were sculptors. So there's a bit of art as well as science in there. But to improve the forms, they removed a number of bones in some cases and put in reinforcing. So we get metal rods and staples and and incredible material, all kinds of things inside them to try and reinforce them. So they're not just the forms of individuals. They're slightly modified versions sometimes that um, have been created. Um, But part of every cast is original. So you're interested in exploring all those aspects, so the the skeleton, skeletal remains, but also the way the casts were made. It's really important for us to understand how they're made, what's original and what isn't, because they're iconic. <laughs> Everyone knows about the casts of Pompeii. They're unparalleled. We have no preserved forms like this from anywhere else in the world. And it's really important that we understand what's manufactured and what's original. There's so much information we can learn from these incredible finds, but we do need to know what's original. And some of the original forms, they don't just preserve the outline of a person, but also the weave of their clothing and even embroidered clothing, you can see, locks of hair. So, you know, phenomenal detail. Yeah, that sounds incredible. And inside the cast, we don't just get skeletons, we get um, other inclusions. So we found jewellery, we found the little um, nails that hold their uh, shoes together. So a lot of them we can see on the outside of the cast, straps of sandals. And inside, we've actually got the hobnails that help them together. Wow. So do you have to get permission from all kinds of places to undertake this research? Yes. So the administration's changed in the last few years. So Pompeii is now an autonomous museum called the Pompeii Archaeological Park, and it's uh, part of the Ministry of Culture. So you need to get permission. So it's essentially government permission to do work. So not everyone can just rock up and do work. You need to be affiliated with an institution. Uh, They want you to have a track record. Um, You have to produce results. You have to share your information. If you don't abide by regulations, you lose your permission. So, yes, it's um, well regulated. So how did you get the equipment onto the site? Well, there are various ways that we work. So we couldn't really undertake this project until the technology became available, which is this century. So I started working at the end of last century before we had portable digital X-ray machines. They were 
big game changer. And they've been specifically designed for veterinary purposes. So large animals that won't fit into a veterinary clinic or racehorses that they need to x-ray out in the field. And this equipment's just perfect for what we do. And it's even since we started using it in 2012, the technology's improved. So we can work without batteries, without cables. We can get between casts that are in situ on the ground without damaging them. We can get into very tight spaces and we can see the results of our work instantly on tablets or computer screens so we can then work out which angles we need to take because x-rays actually produce shadows and you want to get a good angle to get a good image without that's not distorted and we can't always control that because a number of our victims are actually embedded in the pyroclastic material so we work opportunistically on the ground now for the casts that aren't too fragile and aren't still in situ, we can use even better technology, which is CT scans. In 2015, Philips very kindly brought a hospital CT scanner onto the site. So um, not in the site, but just outside the walls of the site. They brought it with a truck and a little hut was erected around it and we could bring costs to that. In 2017, the local hospital allowed us to use their even better CT scanner. So with the help of restorers and very carefully constructed conservation containers, we were able to transport five costs to the local hospital. And there we got amazing results and we're hoping to continue that. So how many casts have you actually looked at now? So there are 86 that have been restored out of 105 that have been made since 1863. And we've looked at about 53 of those. So the results are obviously quite fascinating then. They're fabulous and unexpected. So we have skeletal remains and we're able to tell the life stories of those individuals. So before, people just looked at the casts and what the context where they were found and maybe what they were found with, and they made up stories, they superimposed lives and personalities onto these individuals that they almost certainly never had. And, you know, that is a problem with archaeology. It can be more accurately described as the study of archaeologists more than the material that they're working on. And what we're trying to do with this project is actually restore the lives of the individuals using their skeletal remains to tell their story. I believe sometimes they even got the sex wrong of the of the victim. Yes. <laughs> How did that happen? Oh, just, um, well, any individual that's had been found with a vaguely distended belly, with the exception of the first cast, has been interpreted as a pregnant woman. And when you actually look at the skeletal evidence, that's not always the case. So do you think that you'll still have years of work there? Does Pompeii still have lots to offer you? Oh, lifetimes of work, way beyond my existence, definitely. And obviously it attracts thousands and thousands of visitors. I mean, is that a problem? Is that a problem for preserving the history? Yeah, Pompeii risks being loved to death. So this year it's estimated 4 million people are going to visit the site and that's just too many for it to cope with. Not because people mean to do harm, but just moving that many people around a fragile site and it's very uneven, it's difficult to walk on, it gets very hot in the summer, when it rains it's 
really exposed and um, people don't necessarily look where they're going or what they're touching as they move across the side or they take little souvenirs and it's at great risk from being lost. So do you think they'll eventually close it to visitors? No, um, I don't think so. And I think it's really important that there are visitors because uh, people, it's part of our world heritage. It's everyone's heritage. And I think that people should see it. Uh, And also having people see it, they present as stakeholders and they put pressure on governments to maintain the site. So I think it's really important that it's open, but maybe that visits should be more controlled and perhaps a cap put on the number of visits that occur each day. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for your time. That concludes today's episode for The Thinking Traveller, a series brought to you by Academy Travel. To stay up to date with the latest conversations in this series, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you source your shows. For more information on Academy Travel's tour programme, to read other interesting articles written by their expert tour leaders, or to catch up with them in person at a public event around Australia, visit academytravel.com.au. Until next time, I'm Jo Litson. Thank you for your company.